Hello everyone. Welcome to Arjniti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. We are very happy to have Professor Dilip Mukherjee with us today. He is currently a professor of economics at Boston University. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society, NBER, CEPR, and he broadly works on organization theory, political economy, and economic development. We are very happy to have you with us today, Professor Dilip. Welcome to Arjniti. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Shekhar. So you have a very fascinating career trajectory. You were in the U.S., then you came and taught at ISI, and then you went back again. And it happened four decades ago. So it would be interesting to just know about how was ISI four decades ago. Precisely, it was kind of three decades, three and a half decades. It was eighty-nine is when I came back to ISI from uh, Stanford. It was uh, it was very different <laughs> from what you know you see today in India. ISI was, you know, obviously, you know, outstanding institution in terms of the people there, but in terms of resources, infrastructure, and just the whole, you know, the the culture of the institution. So this was ISI Delhi. ISI Delhi, yeah. yeah. So one, you know, we had a computer center. We had to go downstairs and you know wait our turn at one of the few terminals. There was originally mainframe, and then we got a few PCs. I was on the computing committee trying to get a good mainframe. And then trying to get uh, the institution to give each faculty member a, a PC in their office—that was a struggle that took three or four years. Getting email to ISI was another struggle. Uh, I remember going and meeting somebody in the Ministry of Electronics, and you know, he just said, "Oh, I know what you're going to do with email. You're just going to chat with your friends, right?" And so, anyway, so there's a whole mindset. We it, it took a while. We started the ISI conference around that time, and of, there were, you know. People, a lot of sort of derogatory comments about you know conferences and wasting public know, money. I remember, well, a very senior economist just referred to us as the twittering of birds, the ISI conference. So anyway, with all that, nevertheless, I think it was you know we got we got things up and running. So we got a lot done in a couple of years, but I was just exhausted at the end of it all and quite frustrated. So anyway, so I I didn't I I left after about six or seven years. Okay. So, at least your research it has like a long uh, discussion on uh, land reforms, uh, particularly in West Bengal. So, did the history of like studying this topic also associated with your time at ISI? And if you can talk about the land reforms in general, yes, I started that project. I think uh, no, just around the time I was leaving ISI. Actually, my last two years in ISI, I started thinking about land reform theoretically, and I wrote a theoretical paper. On why land reforms should have productivity impacts, so this ties into sort of broader questions in economic theory about property rights and why property rights matter for efficiency. So, having written that theoretical paper, I there were some development scholars like Pranab Bardhan who were really interested. They were just happened to be in ISI, and when I went back to the U.S., Pranab and Sam Bowles were leading a A network, a MacArthur-funded, MacArthur Foundation-funded network on inequality and economic performance, and they gave me funding and they encouraged me to do empirical work. So I started the project on land reform in West Bengal because I thought it was really wanted to capitalize on what land reforms had been achieved by the the CPM, which came into power in the late 1970s, as an instance of land reforms that had. Trying to quantify the impact on agricultural performance in West Bengal, so I got the the funds from the MacArthur Foundation, and I spent a lot of time creating datasets, uh, and that was also 
you know, painstaking work over many years, but succeeded in, in constructing a data set and then worked on that data set, a succession of papers, you know, for the next 10, 12 years. So how should I think of land reforms, both theoretically and based on your empirical data collection exercise? The question is why, so the, the kind of land reforms that we were talking about in the West Bengal context at that time, there were two essential components to that. There were all these laws about how much land a household could own. And there was the big land-owning households that owned more land was appropriated by the government. And that had happened mostly in the 50s and until the maybe the early 60s. The problem was how to distribute that land and who was going to decide who was going to get the, the land. That was called the Patta program. Patta is the, the term for the land title. So it's the land titling program. The other one, which actually turns out to have uh, turned out to have a much bigger productivity impact, was the registration of sharecroppers. So that was the Barga Operation Barga, and uh, so there was the Barga reform and the Patta reform in in West Bengal. So those were the two reforms that I concentrated on. And the question, you know, theoretically is, as you know, there is a famous theorem <laughs> in sort of Econ 101, which is the Coase theorem. And the Coase theorem basically says that when you change property rights it doesn't really have an effect on, on efficiency. So you may move up and down the Pareto frontier, but you, know, you don't move too outward you know, from inside the frontier to, to a frontier, or the frontier doesn't move out. So the challenge is to explain why this frontier might move out. And so you needed a, a conceptual framework for that. And the conceptual framework involved moral hazard and information problems. So modeling you know, information frictions and, and incentive frictions the basic story was that the person who puts in the effort in cultivation, if that person also owns the land, the, that person ends up obtaining a larger share, the residual returns to that effort. And that is what motivates that person to put in more effort. That was the story in my theoretical paper. And I was really looking for evidence of that kind of an effect. And broadly speaking, the evidence did show that. So Operation Barga in particular had a significant... So I'm trying to understand the difference between the two. So under Patta, you have appropriated this land, and then how did they distribute it? There were still some people who still became sharecroppers even after that? No, there were sharecroppers before. So what Operation Barga did is people who were already sharecroppers, okay. most of the sharecropping contracts were informal. So what the Operation Barga does is register the sharecropping contract and then it protects the sharecropper from being evicted at the will of the landlord. Okay. And also provides for a certain minimum share of the produce going to the sharecropper. And so these are long-term contracts. So these are long-term contracts, and in some ways they made them more long-term than they used to be. They were implicit long-term contracts, but now there was a regulation that prevented the landlord from evicting the sharecropper at his will. So basically transferred you know, the surplus, the larger share of the surplus to the tenant. And so in the long run, so one thing that you see is that they are putting in more effort. So the overall output is going up and maybe they are also gaining a larger share of that. Exactly. Output. So the what is particularly interesting is that this increases productivity at the same time that it reduces inequality. So it's, you know, in Econ 101, you're, you learn that, you know, there's a trade-off between equality and efficiency. But this is one instance where you don't have such a trade-off. It's win-win, right? And so that's why I was so interested in working on the land reforms and finding evidence of the win-win. 
So you look at poverty reduction impacts as well as productivity increase impacts and growth impacts. And so do we also see some changes on how much capital these households buy after these reforms? Does that also change? Yes, so there is a lot else going on apart from this bare bones story. And so I should emphasize that the land reform should not be viewed as narrowly as I have described so far. What was important in West Bengal is that this was complemented by a reform in local governance. So in particular, much before the rest of India, which happened to create Panchayati Raj all over India in, from 1994 onwards, the CPM in West Bengal effectively created the same thing from 1978 onwards. So they transferred the authority for the distribution of related agricultural programs, agricultural development programs, such as the delivery of seeds and fertilizer and credit and local infrastructure. They transferred authority from bureaucrats appointed by the state government to elected leaders of panchayats. And what that did is there used to be a kind of nexus between the bureaucrats and the large landowners. So if the government tried to you know, provide credit or fertilizers to the small farmer, it wouldn't ever get to the small farmer. It would all get siphoned off, you know, either by the you know, bureaucratic corruption or you know, it would go to the large landlord. So there was this complementarity between the decentralization reform and the land reform. So the more broadly, land reform includes this governance reforms at the same time that ensures that the program is not going to be hijacked by landed elites. And you want to deliver a whole range of complementary agricultural inputs. Okay, and that's equally important. So what we found, Pranab Vardhan and I, we worked on this for many years. What we found is that more than the incentive effect that I talked about earlier, this complementary input delivery to the small farmer was even more important. Ah, so the productivity growth coming from these uh, better quality fertilizers. Exactly. Seeds. Yes. In fact, that dominated the, the incentive effort effect. Okay. The incentive effort effect only lasted for about four or five years. It died out after the mid-80s. But the fertilizer, the, they're called agricultural mini-kits, they're heavily subsidized and distributed through the local governments. That effect was quantitatively much bigger and it was much more persistent. So we use data from the late 70s till about the mid 90s. And that effect persisted all the way through. And is there like comparison with the reform similar? I'm again going back to land reforms done by other states in the country or in other places in the world. Like, is there some connection? Do we get similar results almost everywhere? Well, so first, there's also this other interesting question of do we see similar land reform elsewhere? So let's take India, for instance. Look at all the other states. There's very little land reform that happened in most of the other states. With the single exception of Jammu and Kashmir, around, I think, the 1950s, the proportion of land that was distributed, for instance, in the form of pattas, the highest is in Jammu and Kashmir, and it happened in the 1950s. About order of magnitude, about 15% of cultivable area was distributed through this land titling program. But in West Bengal, it's followed by West Bengal, where it's about 7%. And most of the other states is less than 2%. So there was no redistribution. It was mainly reorganizing the land parcels in other parts of India. So it, no, there is, I mean, there is also the appropriation of surplus land, which is called the vesting from people holding surplus land. So there was much less effort happening in most of India in terms of both the appropriation of surplus land and then once having appropriated land, 
And this is one of the surprising things. A lot of states are sitting on land that has already been appropriated. It's not being distributed to the poor. Ah, really? So why? All right. So Pranav and I have a paper in the AER, which is on the political economy of the land reform. Going into the willingness, the political, it, it is a matter of political will. Yeah, so if I, may, if I may just interrupt. Yeah. So which are the states in terms of percentage of land that they are sitting on who haven't redistributed them, but they are sitting on them? I'll have to, if you want the concrete, you know, I'm not going to name states right now because okay. this is a while ago that I did it. And, you know, in terms of the, the extent to which surplus land, you know, the, the breaking up into the vesting effort as well as the redistribution or the, the distribution of vested land, that decomposition, I, I, I don't want to commit to any, any, any uh, claims about which states have done it and which states haven't. But I can assure you that there are many states out there that expressed interest. I've talked to the erstwhile land commissioner who was Devu Bandavardhai in West Bengal. He is an expert on this. He had been consulted by many other state governments because they were interested in what was happening in West Bengal. And Devu Bandavardhai has told me that a lot of those states, they would, you know, hear of what West Bengal had done. They would say, we'll consider it. And then inevitably, they would come back and say, sorry, we can't do it. There's just too much resistance from landed elites. So continuing on this agricultural part, like some of your work has also looked at importance of middlemen or problems because of middlemen in agricultural markets. So how important are these middlemen in the agricultural markets and what has your research focused on in this area? Right. So uh, the reason why I switched from land reform to studying middlemen after that was that in West Bengal, the effect of the land reforms kind of plateaued because I think whatever land reform could have been achieved on both the Patta and the Barga program had more or less been achieved by the mid-90s. So the question was, you know, where was further sort of agricultural growth in West Bengal going to come from? So as I was, I wandered the villages and I talked to farmers and so on, or I talked to local, you know, village people. When I used to ask them this question, uh, and they said, well, the real action is, one is credit, credit to farmers. The second is marketing, agricultural marketing. So there are all these problems with agricultural marketing. So I was trying to understand what the problems are with, with marketing. Then I was told the story that the small farmer is basically not able to sell directly in the wholesale market. So the, the small farmer is mostly selling to the term in Bengal is Fodiyas. So Fodiyas are these local middlemen. Arthis. Arthis. In the north. In the north. Yeah, exactly. And there's a whole supply chain there. So they sell to the village Fodia. The village Fodia sells to another Fodia who's kind of aggregating at a, at a higher level, who in turn is then going and selling in the, in the Mandi. So there is this supply chain. And so I set about trying to understand what the role of these intermediaries are, what are the margins being earned by the middlemen vis-a-vis the farmer, how competitive is this supply chain structure? And basically what we found in West Bengal is that the margins earned by the middlemen are truly astonishingly high. And how competitive it is in one year in particular, so I have a paper with my co-authors which looked at potatoes, which is a, the most lucrative cash crop in, in West Bengal. In the year 2007 or eight. I'm trying to remember. I think it was 2007. And that happened to be a year when there was a glut. 
as a result of a glut, the potato price was depressed. And in that year, as you know from you know, your basic I.O. theory, it's easier for cartels to function in, in the downturn than in the upturn. So more or less what we saw, so we actually conducted, the other part of it is information that the farmers have about the price in the Monday. So typically farmers don't know the price at which their produce is being resold by the middlemen. So we conducted an experiment where we tried to provide information. We tried to gather that information in the Monday and deliver it through cell phones to farmers. And then to our surprise, we found a zero average treatment effect of this reform. Uh, so, we the were cartel, so the cartel of... The cartel. So basically if... So you can work on a model of this and we developed a model of it. Basically, if you sell to a monopolist, information is not going to help you. So information is going to be helpful only if the market structure is competitive. We repeated this experiment subsequently, not in a glut year, but from 2010 to 2013, when the price was, the prevailing price in the Monday was almost three times what it was in 2007. Then it was somewhat competitive, okay, because it's harder for the cartel to sort of keep enforcing a cartel agreement, you know, when the price, the price is so high. high. And in that context, we found that the information treatment did provide a, a, a positive average treatment effect in terms of what the farmer was getting vis-a-vis -vis the middleman. And we also found effects of credit. So that was another series of papers I did. So I'll come back to it just to yeah. put clear picture in my mind. So these middlemen probably have exorbitant markups. They do take a larger pie. But are they also helping in some fashion? Yes, I was going to come to that. So credit. So, you know, why? I mean, you may ask, you know, is this margin earned? in some way by the middlemen. And uh, well, the first thing to explore is maybe, you know, risk bearing, maybe transport, maybe storage, all these functions of a middleman. Could they explain the margins? And we show uh, in, our, in that our stat paper that that does not explain the margins. So why do they earn these margins? And do they in particular provide any useful services to farmers? And one, one service is, is credit. So that's trade credit. And the other service they provide is advice and help to farmers. So I've done a sequence of experiments where you want to deliver credit to small farmers and you can deliver it in, in all, either of three ways. One is you can do it through microfinance, through self-forming groups. The second is you ask the local government to select who, which farmers in the village should get it. And the third is you ask these intermediaries, these middlemen, you incentivize all these people so you, you create a, a contract with an agent who's either appointed by the local government or who is one of these middlemen. And the idea is to capitalize on the information capital of you know, an influential local agent, in one case a political agent, and the other is a business person, and give them a, a bonus or a, a, their, their commission depends on the repayment of the loans of the clients that they recommend. And what we found, so this was an RCT, and we found that when you choose the intermediary agent to be one of these middlemen, it works very well. Okay, it allows, you know, farmers, productive farmers to be selected. And then for these productive farmers to subsequently receive a lot of help and advice from the intermediary, because the incentives of the intermediary and the farmer are aligned in this particular program. So to the extent that the intermediary helps the farmer with useful advice on how to lower costs, the farmer lowers costs 
and thereby you know that generates you know higher production higher productivity and so on so it's mainly targeting of credit to the right farms. targeting of credit as well as providing you know the kind of thing that extension agents are supposed to provide advice on how to increase productivity so these intermediaries do these business intermediaries do provide a useful service that the agent appointed by the local government couldn't or self forming groups obviously have no no agent no, no nobody to help them in, in either respect so that doesn't work either in terms of selection or in terms of you know this kind of uh, business help or productivity enhancing help so the intermediaries provide you know a potentially useful function and i think this is very interesting because you know we often see if if institutional agencies or let's say large companies were to try and contract directly with a farmer so we have all these restrictions on let's say uh, on on these corporate agencies for instance contracting directly with a farmer and the usual argument is that it's going to displace all the middlemen right and the middlemen form important lobbies to try and block these reforms but you know if the corporates were to use the middlemen through this kind of agency contract okay it would benefit both of them it would benefit everybody and i just don't see this idea out there in the in the policy discussion because they always sort of see it in antagonistic terms but i think there is scope for synergistic reform here which would help everybody the corporates the these intermediary agents as well as the farmers i mean big aggregators are also like middlemen these days yeah if you think from that perspective yeah but just continuing on this trajectory so middlemen and probably the recent farm laws which were passed were having this idea about that maybe these middlemen charge exorbitant markups and so maybe you have to do something about it and so i'm i'm going to ask like precise question on it but there's a article that you had in ideas for india where you mention about it that even in states where many farmers sells directly in mandis long distance from farm to market poor market infrastructure and lack of price information lower what they can effectively earn so it seems like whether you have these apmcs the agricultural product market committees or not it seems that it's very difficult for farmers to gain and just continuing on this like the general discussion around farm laws it has been very wide but what has your opinion been on it look the farm laws there are two aspects to it one is the procurement of grain okay and that's kind of the larger piece of you know what all the heat and tension has been about the punjab and haryana case yeah yeah so that's one set of issues and so the article that i wrote in ideas for india was not on that it was on the reform of the mandis i think basically we need we need to think about how to encourage competition in the supply chain and particularly in eastern india it varies a lot across different parts of india so in maharashtra for instance even in madhya pradesh farmers pretty much do sell in the mandi but the way that trades are organized in the mandi you know the action is how trades are conducted in the mandi and there is some kind of you know we hear stories of collusion between the guy who's organizing the sale and the buyers and so on right so the farmers are not getting a good price at the mandi that's one problem the distance from the farmer to the mandi which is something that i was mentioning is also a problem so quite often yeah storage and transport so in maharashtra for instance there was this rct that farshamp and minton had done uh, where they provided information through you know again through cell phones on price information and so on and it had a zero impact and the main reason was that you know 
their ex explanation was that it was the lack of, of infrastructure, the, the large distance and so on. So that's the story in Western India is very different from the story in Eastern India, where the farmers are selling to these uh, Fodiyas, you know, and there is this whole ch supply chain. And they are effectively excluded from the Mandi. So I think, you know, we have to, we need a different set of reforms in different parts of India because the underlying institutions, the marketing institutions are very different. So in, in, in Eastern India, I think this would probably cover Bihar, West Bengal and Orissa at the very least. The farmers are not directly selling at the market. Even they, today? Even today. The farmers are not able to contract, I, mean, I guess everywhere, the corporates are not able to contract directly with the farmer. That would provide competition to the middlemen, right? And that's exactly why they are so resistant towards it. So we need to, we need to take steps to enhance competition. Contract farming is happening in certain parts of India, but not in other parts of India. Contract farming by itself is not necessarily a solution. We also need a regulatory infrastructure. So my broader, I think, policy suggestion is we really need to have a, some kind of a regulatory body which is going to ensure competition in the supply chain. And the particular measures are going to depend on the specific context of each state. I mean, farming is a state subject in that yes, sense. Yes, exactly. And that's where it should be. So I don't think, I don't think the idea of having a nationwide farm bill is a good idea and, you know, the same solution working everywhere else. This should be at the state level, but the states themselves should be thinking in terms of, gen, you know, just ensuring more competition and ensuring that farmers are not, you know, even with contract farming, the, the farmers can get exploited by the buyer, by the corporate buyer. So we have to ensure that there is, for instance, an arbitration mechanism. So that in the, in, you know, in the case of disputes, and quite often a lot of contract farming, not only in India, but many other parts of the world, it's the buyer who's actually behaving opportunistically and exploiting the supplier, the small supplier. Right? He claims that the quality of the produce is not at what it was supposed to be and then therefore they start not paying the, the farmer or the person who's delivering milk and so on. So cooperatives is one solution and it works in certain parts of India. But either cooperatives or I think we need some kind of, you know, maybe the panchayats ought to be involved or maybe we have to have NGOs who are involved or maybe you need to create some kind of a quasi-judicial authority regulating. Some regulatory yeah. body where it's quick to dispose of these kind of cases. Exactly, yeah. So I'm going to another part of your research, which is, and I, I'm again borrowing from the agricultural discussion, where you said that the land reforms in West Bengal led to increase both in efficiency, but also reduction in inequality. So it's inequality, which I'm focusing on now. Like, have you seen changes in India on this front since the time you started working on this topic? And what are the theoretical questions we should be really thinking about in this case? Again, I've worked on this carefully in the context of West Bengal because I had the data. You need to understand inequality. What I found in West Bengal, you need to understand the structure of households. So, for instance, you see a sharp increase in inequality. And a large part of that is driven by an increase in landlessness. The process by which a household that has a certain amount of land, there are countless households where if I basically tried to create the history of land ownership at the household level over, let's say, four decades. And in many, many instances, a household that had five acres of land in 1970, the amount just kept going down over time. And at some stage, it disappeared and it became landless, right? And it turns out that the fraction of households in rural West Bengal 
that is now landless is about 50%. It's over 50%. Whereas it used to be in the order of the low 30%, let's say in the, in, in the 1980s. So you have this very substantial increase. This is a mass point at zero when you look at the land distribution. Then the land distribution is very thin from zero to about half an acre. So this is basically family bequest fragmentation, which is leading to... So I'm going to come to that. Yeah, so exactly. And then, so there's some kind of a non-convexity between zero and half an acre. It's, you know, so if somebody has less than half an acre, that is not very, that's not viable as a unit of cultivation. So what they tend to do is they tend to sell the land. Okay. And so you have the density of the land distribution is, you know, it's got the sharp spike at zero. And then the density is pretty much near zero until half an acre. At half an acre, you have another spike. And then you have a density that goes on. So you've got this kind of hole between zero and half an acre. So what's happening is that households, land holdings are whittling down over time. And why are they whittling down over time? And then eventually they reach this half acre thing and then they just get thrown into the landless pile. So why does it whittle down over time? We found that the, the single most important reason is the subdivision of households. Households that used to be joint households, joint family structure has been basically disintegrating. And there are three brothers, you know, for instance, who would in earlier times, 50 years ago, would have lived together, worked together, and eaten together. The first step is they stop eating together. So they start having separate kitchens, but they still, you know, own the land, you know, the, the household land. But then there comes a next stage when they also decide to completely split. So they turn into nuclear families. So one family with, let's say, three you know, male siblings splits into three nuclear families. And then, of course, the land of five acres get distributed three ways. So each of them has 1.25 acres, for instance. So that is you know, the single most driver of you know, this, this downward drift of landholding at the household level. And that household eventually from 1.25 acres is going to experience further subdivision because of population growth within the household. Okay, so the land will get, you know, divided amongst its children. So that 1.25 will then come down. So it's really these demographic factors which are driving that we found was the principal, the, the single most important reason of this increased land inequality in West Bengal. The second factor was migration. So again, that's demographic. And West Bengal had substantial migration from, let's say, Bangladesh, 1970, after the, the Bangladesh, well, after the war there. It's been continuing to some extent. And I think about, what, maybe, I forget, maybe 20%, 20, no, it's not 20%, but a substantial fraction of households in West Bengal are essentially migrants from Bangladesh. So that generated further sort of subdivision of land. And then there were the land reforms that actually we find, we, we quantify the, the, the land reforms help reduce this, you know, to stop this process. And particularly the Patta program reduced the incidence of landlessness quite significantly. But, then but it has that been. was really, you know, but still the overall trend of land inequality was significantly up. And poverty is also significantly up as a result. But this is more so in the rural areas. It was entirely in rural areas. I'm just talking about rural West Bengal. Yeah. So talking about productivity, I, I was looking at some of your recent work on firm growth and you're looking at community networks. So in India, we of course know there are a lot of communities which actually thrive in business like the Marwaris. So you're looking very carefully at these questions. Do you find evidence for these kind of anecdotal stories that we keep hearing about? The answer is yes, okay, but a qualified yes in the Indian context. I've been working 
on this question very intensively with uh, Kaiwan Munshi, who's kind of an expert on community networks. So he has earlier worked with Abhijit Banerjee, paper on uh, the Tirupur garment cluster, finding evidence of exactly what you were referring to. So there is one paper out there that I would recommend everybody should read. But that is in the context of a specific garment cluster. Kaiwan and I and Vishnupriya Gupta have just finished a paper, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Development Economics, looking at colonial India between the mid-19th century and uh, 1940 or so. The two leading industries where we saw the emergence of entrepreneurship in India were cotton in Western India, you know, between 1865 after the Civil War and let's say up to the First World War. And then you see the jute industry in, in Eastern India. And that was uh, used to be European capital until about 1914. But after 1914, you saw, you know, for instance, Marwaris entering the business. And we, uh, we actually created a data set. The difficult part is the data. What you need is information about new firms, who's forming a new firm, and who they are in terms of their community background, which in India is, you know, some, some intersection of jati and religion. So, for instance, in the case of the cotton industry in Bombay between 1850 and 1890, you had the Parsis and you had the Khoja Muslims and, you know, so you have, you have, you have the Europeans, you have the Jews and so on. So you have five or six communities there. And our paper provides evidence of the importance of community networks in, you know, in, in the early evolution of the cotton industry between 1860 and 1890 in Bombay, for instance. And so how do they help? Okay, maybe Yeah, but then uh, the data in India on entrepreneurship is, you know, I'd love to do more work on India. And the problem is that we do not really have a good database of firms where we have information about the community of the entrepreneurs, the principal entrepreneurs of those firms. So Manaswini Bhalla and Manisha Goel, you know, they've been working hard trying to create a data set for India. And it turns out the only thing that we could, they could find, and Kaiwan and I were talking to them for some time, uh, is post Companies Act, uh, the amendment that happened around 2006. So that gives us, it doesn't give us enough periods. And also it's hard to just what the data includes is the name of the principal entrepreneur to back out the community or the jati or the religion from the name that is a difficult exercise so we are working actually kaiwan and i are working with chinese co-authors on the same question in china and there we have really good results that apply to the entire chinese economy so we are finding evidence of community networks and communities in china local communities in china are built around the birthplace the hometown so we are finding evidence that these community networks played a very important role in the emergence of private enterprise in China after 1990. So we are using data from 19, 1990 till about 2009, you know, when the great you know, financial crisis was happening. Uh, and over that period, that 20-year period, where you see a very substantial growth of private enterprise. So of all firms in China, you, it, you know, when you look at uh, these uh, privately owned Chinese firms, goes from near 0% in 1990 to about 65% of all firms in China. So you've got this astonishing growth. And the same thing for capital as well. And sort of we provide a, a lot of evidence that but what, what are instrumental finding? were the community networks. So if 
can we quantify like how important they are for yes. growth of a specific region? Absolutely, absolutely. So they seem to be like the most dominant factor or I don't know. I mean, it's a very No, I can't say that they are the most dominant factor because there are a number of competing explanations in terms of local infrastructure, location and so on. What we do show is that if we control for those other factors such as local infrastructure and location and so on, controlling for that, this channel explains a very substantial, at least one third of the growth of private enterprise in China across all sectors and all parts of China. Again, moving a little bit more forward, you have started to work on automation. Now it's probably one of the important topics which is uh, dominating the debates. And we generally hear like computer scientists talking about these issues. Uh, there is some work in economics now. So the first thing which I want to understand is how different is it from past mechanization exercises? Should we really worry about the current AI and the automation debate which is there in the public sphere? Okay, I, I've been, the work I've been doing on automation and inequality has been theoretical rather than empirical, but I know some of the empirical literature. I can tell you what I think is the difference, and I think it is an important difference, but I don't have evidence in support of this view. I think the main difference is that emerging trends in automation are a general purpose. They affect almost every productive sector of the economy. So when you think of mechanization, if you think of tractors, for instance, they affect you know, certain sectors of the economy in certain ways. But you know, a tractor is not going to help you in industry, for instance. Okay, maybe electricity was electricity another was example. General. Yeah, so it's a it's general purpose, but b, whenever you have new technology, it typically has some complementarity effects. It can make workers more productive. Okay, and it has labor displacement effects. So you have both complementarity and substitution effects. And the question is, which one dominates? And so for a lot of those, you know, like with tractors or with, with electricity, you have a strong complementarity component. So you may be displacing some people, but you make other people more productive. People who manage to retain their job or learn how to use a tractor or how to work in, a, you know, in an electric-powered factory instead of a steam-powered factory, it makes them more productive. Overall, you know, average productivity goes up. So there is a displacement effect and then there is this productivity enhancement effect. And I think with a lot of the automation technology, I, there is some evidence. So my colleague Pascal Restrepo at BU is working with Daron Asimoglu, been looking at empirical evidence where they're trying to quantify the relative significance of the productivity effect and the substitution effect. And they find evidence of a lot of automation innovations having a relatively low complementarity effect and a high displacement effect. So the example they give is when you go to the supermarket, you know, this checkout thing, you can do self-checkout, okay? And they find that the overall productivity effect of that self-checkout, you know, which now means that, you know, one person who would have checked out your items manually is losing their job. The displacement effect is, you know, almost everything there. So basically what that is, hap what that kind of reform is doing Automation is basically displacing workers without increasing aggregate productivity. So I know this is not your work and you're just quoting their paper, but should we also think in terms of like a timeline? Because maybe electricity, if people have only looked at like within a very narrow band of few years, maybe they would have found that it has higher displacement effect. But over a very long period of time, we saw new sectors coming up. 
So maybe in the case of automation, if you look at very small, and I mean, this kind of GPT is only there for like a decade now. And so maybe we didn't have enough time to think about this issue. That's possible. That's possible. That's possible. Let me add a third reason why I think the, the new technologies are different. And that is, there is this self-replication phenomenon. Goes back to, let's say, von Neumann, for instance, who, as you know, in the last 10 years of his life, he, he just was working on this idea of self-reproducing automat automata, right? And with artificial intelligence, I think we are beginning to see, and machine learning, we're beginning to see a situation where these algorithms, you know, are just learning how to become better and better. They don't need any human input there. So this can generate a tendency where, you know, the progress of automated technology is autonomous. It drives itself. And so that generates a very powerful sort of source of exponential growth in the displacement effect. So I think you combine these three, I think it's, it's a powerful cocktail. Uh, and that, that's what I think is really, uh, and, and the effects are going to be felt into the future. We, again, the evidence is, it's just too early, you know, what's happening with artificial intelligence. But it's really mind boggling what you see, right? I mean, you see Deep Blue beating Gary Kasparov, for instance, you know, that happened 10 years ago. Okay, so these guys, you know, these, I don't know how you refer to them, not these guys, these robots, right? They just autonomously, you know, becoming more and more powerful. Uh, I guess we'll have to go back to your earlier research and again think about how to redistribute the benefits if there is growth from this avenue. And I think the problem, you know, is going to be political. And I, I see insufficient exploration of this issue. I think one of the most devastating effects of inequality, especially this kind of extreme inequality where the 1% of the population is getting very rich, they also become politically very powerful. And, you know, if it's really 1%, you know, the 1% of the population that owns the robots and so on, they can buy everybody, right? So why on earth would they buy a politician who wants to tax away their wealth, right? I think that's, that's the political problem that keeps me up at night. So can we have a happy ending to it in some way? Can we have a happy ending to it? Well, uh, what I think we need, you know, uh, so a paper that I've just finished with Devraj Ray, which is published in the Review of Economic Dynamics last year, predicts, unlike most other theoretical analyses of automation, that if you just let the laissez-faire economy go, the share of labor in national income is going to go all the way down to zero. However, at the same time, the wages of labor will go to infinity. So there's automation generates productivity growth, which is actually a source of endogenous growth. So even in the absence of any other kind of technical progress, this self-replicating robots are going to generate productivity gains, which are going to be sustained and persistent. And benefits will percolate down to workers, not as fast as the benefits accrue to the capitalists that own the robots, Right? But nevertheless, there is percolation, and workers also benefit from the process of automation. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. The second is, I think it's vitally important for workers to stay, you know, you see the wave coming, and you've got to ride the wave. And what it involves is skilling. So you have to sort of acquire the skills that are going to be complementary with the robots. So I think it requires attention to skill formation, uh, that keeps 
you know, in uh, keeps itself aligned with new trends and technology. The third is smart investing. It's very important that all households learn how to invest, you know, in the stock market. Yeah, either either through you know financial literacy programs, or maybe we need you know some kind of a government something in our constitution, which you know does it for them. Something like social security, right? So I think if we have we, we try to develop a comprehensive welfare system, then you know it's going to inevitably be the case that a large fraction of the population, even in the United States, a fraction of the population that's actually investing the basis of some, you know, information in the stock market is still pretty low. So you need something like a social security system and sort of build it into the constitution, okay? Uh, That's going to not be subject to the lobbies of, you know, of the wealthy that, you know, will prevent some kind of wealth taxation, which we see happening all the time. So we need, I think, in India to develop something like a comprehensive welfare system, which will... And, you know, and whoever is going to manage the Social Security Fund in India, you know, should be managing it, you know, and allocating a substantial fraction to to stocks in these companies, in these technology companies. Thank you for leaving us with these wonderful questions. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank Thank you. Thank you very much for, for your very perceptive questions.